<laughs> I wasn't Liza hearing you. I, yeah. Okay, we're on. Uh, we're on the air. Yes. And I, I wanted to say hello to everyone and happy New Year. Welcome to our first program of 2023. And today our program is Divining Chaos: The Autobiography of an Idea. But I'm going to start the show a little differently than I usually do and bring on my guest before I introduce the show and the. Uh, and her uh, bio. Hello, Dr. Romani. Are you there? I am here. Hi, Jill. Hi. Yay. Uh, I wanted to um, uh, bring you on early because I wanted to talk about weather. How's the weather in Maine? Good. I want to talk about weather, too. <laughs> I know. <laughs> well, You've I've just got, had I, some, right? Oh, we've had more than we could stand. <laughs> And that's one reason is we're at three different locations. You're in Maine. I, uh, Eliza, my, my fabulous program engineer, is in uh, Santa Cruz, California. I'm in Carmel, California, about 45 uh-huh. mil- miles south of that. So we're doing this radio show with technology, <laughs> putting yes. it all together. And if we lose you, uh, for some reason, Eliza will call you. You lose me, I'll call back, and I. And if we lose the station, uh, Dr. Romani, we have to wait for the generator to kick on, <laughs> but then we'll Okay, all our I, I can live with that. We have generators here, too. I'm on an island. You know, this is live radio, and anything can happen, but I'm hoping for the best. And also, what we're experiencing in California is uh, the climate crisis in action, and I I tell people it's here, it's real, and it's only going to get worse. Yeah, on that happy note, let me introduce the topic. Uh, In her new autobiography, groundbreaking and acclaimed artist Dr. Aviva Romani shares her evolution as a woman, an artist, an eco-feminist, and a fearless defender of the natural world. In the world of eco-art, a genre which combines art techniques, political activism, and scientific insight to create pieces that speak directly to our current ecological threat. Dr. Romani's cutting-edge work grapples with the political, social, and cultural realities of the day. We have big things to do. Dr. Aviva Romani is a pioneering ecological artist. She is an affiliate of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and Dr. Romani earned her Ph.D. from the University of Plymouth in the United Kingdom. And on a more local note, Dr. Romani received her BFA and MFA at the California Institute of the Arts. So, Dr. Romani, let me formally welcome you to Be Bold America. Thank you so much, Jill. Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. So you're experiencing weather, huh? You and the rest of the world. (laughs) <laughs> yes, did you even hear, what, three, five years ago, the phrase atmospheric river? I mean... <laughs> you know, I hadn't heard that before, no. and I think it's absolutely fascinating. Well, what it is is that you, they need uh, another term because you just can't call it rain anymore right. or a storm. It's even greater than that. Uh, but to start the program, you know, maybe a place to start is for you to tell us what happened in 1962 that started you on a divining a path out of chaos. And what is divining chaos? And also, um, in there, maybe define echo art as well. So 
What is divining chaos? Well, we live in chaotic times, and most people associate chaos with the idea of a great deal of confusion, and we are confused. But chaos is also a term from physics and complexity theory, and it basically is the idea that things are in transition, which is exactly what we're experiencing. As humans, and most of us don't do physics routinely, we don't understand how the system is changing except that we're experiencing the impacts, such as you just described, the droughts, the fires, the winters without snow here in the northeast, and the summers that are unbearable. So when I did my first ecological work, which really began seriously, although I had been working on these issues from the very beginning of my career, when I started to work on habitat restoration and conservation, I began to look at what were the factors that actually caused that experience of chaos and change. And when I went ahead and did my dissertation, I began to break it down and compare what I had observed as an artist and as an ecological artist, and I define an ecological artist or an eco-artist as someone who looks to design practical solutions that are aesthetic concepts that will change systems. At that point in my dissertation, I began to learn a great deal about physics, and I began to understand how, in fact, change occurs. And the theoretical work that I did then allowed me to define a set of rules that will determine how change occurs. So divining chaos is... a reference to how an artist works when we work with change and aspiration and when we are in the process of redefining and understanding systems, which is that art, as we all know, is an extremely intuitive process. We may be very technologically skilled in our various disciplines, but once we master the basics, our decisions are intuitive. And the intuition that we all have is very much about a spiritual process. So divining refers to the spiritual, intuitive, aesthetic parts of our human nature that can observe and can affect change. So divining chaos means that there is a way through to experience the transition we're all going through that engages art as much as science in the process of adaptation and to some extent amelioration of the changes humans have brought to the earth. Well, in the subtitle of your book, Autobiography of an Idea, what is that idea? Correct. I was very conscious in the words that I chose, and autobiography is usually 
applied to a personal memoir that is about, well, this happened to me, and I responded, and then I made this decision, and so on and so forth. And it's not associated with what I associate it with, which is all the layers of experience that go into the evolution of an idea. And as a feminist, what I've been aware of for most of my life is that it's our very personal experiences that can be the biggest part of how we come to an analytic conclusion. So when I said the autobiography of an idea as my subtitle, or I chose it, my thinking was that when an idea evolves for any of us, it is as much about our personal evolution as it is about putting together this piece of research and that piece of research. It's all research. The research we do into ourselves is applicable to the intellectual process we go through as we try to understand and define what we're experiencing. And it's in that understanding of our own experience that we can divine our way out of the most traumatic parts of chaotic transition into something that might be a bit more hopeful and orderly. Well, you mentioned personal evolution. Can you expand on that some more, maybe as it relates to the chaotic transition? Yeah. You know, everybody's talking about uh, Prince Harry's autobiography. And one of the things that's really interesting about that book is that he's really dismantling the mythology around the British monarchy. And it's the mythologies around totalitarian and colonial systems that allow them to perpetuate themselves and to perpetuate a system that I would reference as patriarchal. The problem with patriarchal systems is that it privileges a very few number of people and demographically very narrow, in this case, white, cis, male. What Prince Harry did was he said, hey, the whole thing has clay feet. If... Mm -hmm the British monarchy would fall as an institution, and I'm not advocating that it should fall, we might begin to look at what is the system itself. The British Empire has been responsible for tremendous colonial insults to other people and to the environment, and it continues to be. It works with uh, Canadian fossil fuel systems to destroy tribal lands, for example, in order to get shale oil. These are all systems that have to be questioned. And I know you asked me at the end of the program to define some of the things that we can do to change yeah, the, keep, the systems that are causing right, stop starts. Yeah, mm-hmm. that, keeps that are start. causing these tremendous impacts, the very first thing we can do is start questioning what hasn't been questioned before. And that doesn't mean that you entirely dismantle the authority of knowledge or systems that work, but it does mean that you ask for transparency. 
for example, what is the story behind the British monarchy, and that's the aspect of his memoir that I think is actually quite interesting. Not because he intended to do it, but simply because he did it. And the Mm -hmm. idea of that kind of transparency is something that comes directly out of feminism. Feminism began to talk about ideas like rape and domestic violence, which are very interesting intrinsic to patriarchal systems and even to totalitarianism. And now that idea of transparency with the help of Oprah Winfrey and many other people has infiltrated the whole culture. So there's a certain expectation that we have a right to know what's going on. And when you ask a question, that's precisely what you're setting in motion. You're beginning to ask, is this really okay? For example, air flight represents about 14% of all carbon emissions. It's thought that by 2050, it would represent a quarter of all emissions. That's a problem, and it's a problem that we have to solve. But we can't solve the problem until we start asking the questions. And that's a lot of what art does. It presents things from a point of view where you're almost required to ask the question, what is it that I'm looking at? What is it that I'm experiencing? How is it different than what I assumed about my experience? Well, after the break, I wanted to ask you about your trigger point theory. You are listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Our topic today is Divining Chaos, the Autobiography of an Idea, and we're speaking with Dr. Aviva Romani, who is a pioneering ecological artist and an affiliate of the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado at Boulder, and is the author of Divining Chaos. To learn more about her, visit her website at avivaromani.com. That's A-V-I-V-A, Romani.com. I'm your host, Jill Cody. Join KSQD this evening at 6 p.m. for Reflections on Buddhism, a monthly conversation on bringing spiritual truths into everyday life. This month's guest is Joey Weber, author of Why Mindfulness is Not Enough, Unlocking Compassion and Equanimity. Mindfulness meditation has become popular, now taught in places as diverse as prisons and corporate boardrooms. It's defined as awareness that arises through paying attention on purpose in the present moment, non-judgmentally. Popular mindfulness, mindfulness programs emphasize training one's attention rather than being non-judgmental. Dr. Weber takes us into the meaning of equanimity, what it can bring to our lives, and how it can inspire our own compassionate action. That's this evening from 6 to 7 p.m. on 90.7 FM, K-Squid, Many Voices, One Station. We're back. Would you like a friend to hear Dr. Aviva Romani's interview? Be Bold America is available as a podcast. Subscribe for free from any podcast platform. Now, Dr. Romani, what is your trigger point theory? Thank you for asking, and of course, thank you so much for putting me on your program. Trigger point theory. (laughs) (laughs) Well, trigger point theory is uh, built on chaos theory and complexity theory, and it's the very familiar term of 
butterfly impact, that there's something very small that in a cascade of events can create major impacts on any system. So trigger point theory is the idea that we could identify a set of rules by which we can look at any system to understand it better, and when we apply those rules, we can begin to understand how things will probably change. And my particular part of that approach is that art can find those trigger points, the point where the butterfly effect starts. So some of the rules are that the paradox of the urgency that we feel now is that at the same time we have the opportunity, the time to change. Another rule is that layering all different kinds of information, and that's, this is where diversity comes in. All different groups of people and animals have different kinds of information, and if we put them all together, it will test our perception. Another is that play will teach. This is an old idea in education, that the more joyfully, the more playfully you approach any problem that you might be curious about, the more you engage a theme of play in the process of curiosity, the more you will actually learn from the experience. Another is that there will be critical disruptions in sensitive initial conditions. So if you're going to apply this theory, what you look for are the sensitive initial conditions. And I would propose that we're actually at a point of extremely sensitive initial conditions, and this is the point where we need to look at the critical disruption that would start the butterfly effect in motion. Another rule is that metaphors are idea models and they are all around us. And finally, the most important rule of all is that in any chaotic system, there will always be a small point of entry. What art does with these rules, or how I've applied art with these rules, is that art can observe in very complicated ways. And out of that observation, that's where we will find the small point of entry into these chaotic systems. So, for example, in the project The Blue Trees Symphony, I looked at the point of intersection between copyright law and eminent domain law to challenge the idea that Fossil fuel corporations could take private land with impunity to destroy the habitat, specifically forested systems, in order to install natural gas pipelines for their profit by selling the gas that's extracted very often from indigenous lands to global entities without the the effective input of local communities. So we took that theory to court in a mock trial at the Cardozo School of Law, and we did win an injunction in 2018. It has yet to be applied, 
but it's a piece of new information in terms of referring back to this idea of layering data that could be applied down the line in other situations eventually to find accountability for the kind of ecocide we're seeing across the planet. Mm, Well, you and Tim White, and please tell us who he is, produced a film called Trigger Points, Tipping Points. How did that come about, and uh, is is what you just uh, related uh, the points of that movie or the messages of that movie? Can people see that film somewhere? Yeah, it's online. It's online. And I think there might be a link on my website. I'm honestly not sure. I'll have to double-check that with my webmaster. (laughs) But if you look up Trigger Points, Tipping Points on Vimeo, you can find it. Jim White is a really brilliant paleoecologist who is the former dean at the University of Colorado in Boulder. And now I think he's at University of South Carolina or North Carolina. Honestly, I'm not sure which. He just took a new job. And he was the founding director of the Institute for Arctic and Alpine Research, where I'm an affiliate. And we've worked together since 2007 when we were invited to create a collaboration for a show called Weather Report that Lucy Lepard had curated for the Boulder Museum of Contemporary Art. In the film that you're referencing, we took a look at three different points across the globe where we knew there was some sort of demographic conflict. And we looked at the relationship between Gulf zones globally, conflict zones, and climate change. So the three places we looked at were Bangladesh, Sudan at that time, and New Orleans. This was before Katrina. And what some researchers have looked at, and in fact the U.S. Army has been looking at for a while, is how often climate change will parallel severe climate change impacts. So we analyzed uh, the dynamics of each of those three places, and what would be the -the down-the-line implications. So, for example, with Bangladesh, and uh, they recently that whole region has experienced horrible flooding, Uh, what we saw was that, uh, applying trigger point theory, that there would have to be hundreds of millions of immigrant refugees coming from that region of the planet because there simply was no, no way to survive anymore there. And, and we're seeing that across the globe. People are fleeing climate disaster, and the people who are fleeing are not the people who created the problem. The people who created the problem are buying estates in New Zealand. The people who are being impacted are marginal people across the planet who can no longer, for example, live in coastal zones because they're being inundated, whose lands are experiencing incredible droughts. And this fosters demographic conflict as well. For example, the kinds of crises we saw in the Middle East. You have also, being an echo artist, you had in the book a definition of art. 
And um, you've also said that art has a long has been having a long standing argument whether art can create change or not. Can you talk about that definition and how art can create change? Yeah, let me go back for a second and say that I think the concept, which is very prevalent, which is, oh, art can't change anything, it's just pretty, that in (laughs) itself is just not true. We all know that art has impacted us, but it's inconvenient to the powers that be to allow art to have that impact. So the best way you can disempower any group is to say, you don't have any power. The only power you have is some sort of mental, spiritual, pleasant experience that you feel good about. But it's divorced from real life. But we know that art can have enormous impacts on people. So to some extent, it's just a question of belief systems. If artists believe they can have impact, if the public admits that we're having an impact, then all of a sudden something begins to shift. And sometimes it really is just because we're representing something that people have known, but they couldn't quite put it into words or formulate it in their minds. Once you see something, it's making the invisible visible, all of a sudden your world can change. Well, you talk about art uh, being a catalyst for political change. Can you expand on that some more? Yeah. So, for example, in the Blue Tree Symphony, I created a series of installations in one-third mile increments, which I called measures in a musical score. And then, as I said, those were copyrighted. So theoretically, that meant they had protection. That meant that the corporations could not take the land by eminent domain because it would destroy the earth. Or, sorry, yeah, destroy the trees that are part of the earth. When that was established as an actual injunction based on the of the art, it posited the idea that land and nature and art could have a relationship worthy of protection from profiteering. If that's true, it challenges the very idea of why we have eminent domain law at all. Eminent domain law, theoretically, is for the public good. It's the idea that we take this land from a private individual and it's going to help a larger community. But that's not how it's often being used in this country, or other countries for that matter. Land is being taken for the private profit of a few corporate people who will live very well in New Zealand not even for the workers, for the most part, in that corporation. And in the meantime, they destroy the land, they destroy the kind of habitat contiguity that might mitigate climate change. So if that's true, the basis of any public policy is the interpretation of law. If the legal theory is correct, 
then it challenges the notion that corporations can do whatever they please because they say it's for the public good. The corporations in this case were saying natural gas is for the public good. Well, to some extent it is, but only because we haven't really put the money into alternative energy systems that we need to, and it only works because the fossil fuel corporations are subsidized by the government. Yeah, so some people get some natural gas. Is that the most efficient solution to the kinds of energy crises we face? I don't think so, and a lot of other people don't think so either. So once you get this idea into the public imagination that, hey, there's something about the judicial system that's broken and needs to be fixed, and that the status quo does not have to be that all amenities go to a few privileged people, that we have to consider what really is public good, what really is the common good in a judicial system, then we have to start changing policy. And the way you start changing policy is not just by asking questions, but by demanding answers. Well, this is a good time for our next break. You're listening to Be Bold America on KSQD 90.7 FM. Many voices, one station. Listen globally online from the ksqd.org website. Would you like to be added to our news group and get advance notice of our upcoming interviews? If so, please text Be Bold America at 22828. Text Be Bold America at 22828. And if you've signed up already, we're tickled pink. We love to see new names on our list. Uh, We will be right back with our bold guest, Dr. Aviva Romani, author of Divining Chaos, the autobiography of an idea right after Jim Hightower's commentary titled, Is Your Lush Green Lawn Killing Mother Nature? Sometimes little things can be a big deal. For example, in considering ways to help protect Mother Earth from global environmental rampages by us humans, look out your window. In many cities and most suburbs, chances are you're looking at a lawn, a grass-carpeted yard that looks almost the same as the one next door, the one next to it, etc. Some see a lush expanse of green grass as the ultimate in landscaping beauty, and some even consider a well-manicured lawn to be a measure of one's moral character. Beauty and piety aside, though, the spread and intensification of lawn culture has become an environmental extravagance that is already unsustainable in whole sections of our country, and it adds up to a steadily increasing burden on Earth's essential resources. Grass itself is natural, but keeping it alive across thousands of square miles is not, for it requires a deluge of chemicals and endless rivers of water applied again and again, yard after yard, trying to keep those plots green. And, oh, the irony, their green includes eliminating bees, butterflies, and, well, nature. One statistic tells the tale. Americans use more than ten times more poison per acre on lawns than America's farmers use on their crops. Just glance around you and you'll see the grass lawn imperative at work throughout your community. It surrounds local schools, greens up corporate complexes, spreads across college campuses, forms miles of golf courses, etc. This is Jim Hightower saying, This is not a diatribe against grassy plots, which can be natural joys. 
But let's get real, get creative, and get in touch with the full balance and beauty of nature. You can promote ground cover sanity right where you live with native plants, xeriscaping, organic methods, rain gardens, and rewilding your yard with things like prairie grass. For help, go to rewild.org. The Hightower Radio Lowdown is brought to you by the Lowdown Happy Hour, live streamed from the Chat and Chew Cafe. Details at HightowerLowdown.org. We're back, and our topic is Divining Chaos, the Autobiography of an Idea. And we're speaking with our bold and impressive guest, Dr. Aviva Romani. Dr. Romani, after listening to Jim Hightower's commentary there, Asking of green lawns or killing perfect. Mother Nature. Good. I was wondering if you had thoughts. Uh, I loved it. That you wanted. I Good. loved it. Go ahead. Oh, did you have any extra thoughts on that, on what he said? Well, just that he's right on the money. Uh, there are a lot of ways that we can be part of changing the status quo so that we get to a place that's actually sustainable and has some resilience and allows us to adapt to the major catastrophic changes we're all experiencing. And some of them are really, really simple. Like instead of having a Kentucky bluegrass lawn, just have indigenous plants. They're gorgeous. You can have a wildflower meadow of wildflowers that are particular to your region that would be the envy of all your friends. You can create what's called a xeriscape garden that doesn't require water, but is still very, very beautiful. And that can account for a tremendous amount of reduction in carbon emissions. There are a lot of things that we can do for carbon emissions, and some of them don't even require us to do very much. Just allow the wolves to continue to predate on deer. That's a really important part of conservation. Allow the beavers to come back and recreate the kinds of water systems that were here before colonization. There are so many things that can be done not only with wolves and beavers, but butterflies and bees. And if you just convert your Kentucky bluegrass lawn into an indigenous wildflower landscape, you'll help that happen. So I thought he was perfectly on the money. I was just going to say that your your lawn, once it's converted, can be a trigger point for regional change. And it could inspire your neighbors as well. Well, I do um, have to say in California, because we've been struggling with water for so long, long, I want to make sure I say long, um, that we don't see many lawns anymore. Now, to just That's wonderful, to but hopefully your, bit. your program is reaching out to the whole country, and there's a whole country that could learn from you. Yes. Um, right. One, just changing the subject for a second, there was one very powerful sentence in, that I read in your book, that you said, isn't cruelty at the heart of ecocide? I'd really like you to expand on that. What is ecocide and cruelty being a part, being the heart of it? Okay, well, ecocide is an extrapolation from the idea of genocide. It's the idea that we murder entire ecological systems just as we murder people. To murder anything or anybody 
is to inure yourself to the suffering of others. You can't kill anything with impunity. Even in factory farming, for example, where we have vast numbers of animals experiencing horrible misery, even if we say, oh, I must have beef every night, I must have my steak, what we're doing to the planet is increasing the methane emissions, which increases the carbon footprint that we each have. So just by becoming more vegetarian in our diet, we can change everything. And excuse me, I forgot the question. <laughs> well, <laughs> that's quite all right. I'm here with cruelty, my cruelty, right in front of me. To cruelty. Yes, go back to cruelty. Isn't cruelty <laughs> at the heart of ecocide? Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is. Uh, just think about it for a second. Um, what does it mean to destroy a whole species? What does it mean to be inured to the suffering of people who are fleeing their own countries because we've, we have made their countries uninhabitable? There's a lot of discussion about Colorado River water. But what about the fact that we cut off the Colorado River before it got to Mexico, making it much harder to sustain agriculture in Mexico? So first we push out all the indigenous people back down to Mexico. Then we cut off their water. Then they can't farm. They can't sustain themselves. Then, hello, they come back across the border. Who knew? And that's cruel, to take something from somebody else so that they cannot survive and then to castigate them and abuse them because they've become desperate because of our behavior. That's cruel. And when we not only castigate and abuse them, but deny them the capacity to survive, to come back to what were their lands that we stole, that is cruel. When we don't allow the beavers, the wolves, the bison to come back and repopulate and rehabilitate the lands that require conservation so desperately, we're not just being cruel to that species. We're being cruel to ourselves because the deer, if they're not allowed to be contained by wolves, will destroy every sapling in sight and there won't be any forest. The beavers will allow us to manage the waterway systems. The bison will allow the prairies to come back, and all this will regenerate passively the environment that we have devastated with our ecocide. And the problem with ecocide is that it was defined by Galloway, Arthur Galloway, but it has continued with impunity because there is no application of the law. Everybody agreed, yeah, it's a good idea, it's a real thing, it's a law, we have to do something about it. But nobody did anything about it. And so the corporations that have continued to create ecocide across the planet have continued. Why shouldn't they? Nobody is stopping them. And that's cruel. Well, you wrote, yes, you wrote in the chapter two that cruelty, and as you're identifying, cruelty comes in many flavors. Another powerful sentence I thought was, our minds can be cruelly raped without ever engaging our body. 
And that acquiescence to cruelty is a kind of rape. I thought that was a very profound thought. Can you talk a little more about that? Yeah, I don't even remember writing it. <laughs> but it's, it's true. It's very profound, Dr. Romani. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. I think that when you learn to be helpless, not just about the cruelty you see around you and inflicted on other people, but the cruelty you impose upon yourself by forcing oneself to adapt to an impossible system, you are raping yourself. You are creating eco-suicide. You are living in a state of cruelty. I think that's essentially what I meant by that phrase. Well, it, and if it, we can't just... liberate ourselves from that experience of cruelty, we will inevitably perpetuate it and proliferate it. There's a wonderful quote from a sociologist that I always think about that I heard back in the 80s, which was, if you don't feel your own pain, it's incredible how much pain you can inflict on others. That is so true on so many ways, on so many people. I think that when we don't really take a good look at how an intractable and unfair system is destroying each one of us personally, not only will we inevitably continue to live in that cruel system, but we will perpetuate it and impose it on many other people and many other species. Not necessarily directly, but certainly indirectly. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Aviva Romani, author of Divining Chaos, the Autobiography of an Idea, and is a pioneering ecological artist and affiliate with the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado at Boulder. I'm your host, Jill Cody. We have storm information as of 3.15 p.m. Sunday, January 15th. KSQD's Tony Russomano tells us we'll have rain on and off with gusty winds through Monday night, then sunny on Tuesday. A flood watch continues in effect for Santa Cruz and Monterey counties through Monday evening. Saturated soils are not able to absorb more excessive rain. There's also an advisory for coastal flooding and beach hazards, including storm debris and dangerous surf through Monday evening. Excuse me, Monday morning. The only mandatory evacuation orders in effect as of Sunday afternoon are along Riverside Road in Watsonville and Whitehorse Road in the far northern end of the county. Evacuation centers are open at the county fairgrounds in Watsonville and at Cabrillo College in Aptos. Both areas allow pets and have RV parking. Santa Cruz Metro's Paracruz service is offering free transportation for evacuation zone residents. Passengers can bring a carry-on of necessary items. Service dogs are welcome. For pickup, call Paracruz at 831-425-4664 or dial 711 for hearing and speech-impaired services. PG&E says more than 2,000 customers have no power in Santa Cruz County, but power has been restored to all but 200 customers in Monterey County. Major road closures include Highway 9 from Ben Lomond to Coon Heights Road. Traffic is being detoured onto Glen Arbor Road. San Juan Road and Salinas Road is closed in and out of Salinas. 
Highway 92 is closed between the Half Moon Bay Nursery and Highway 35 in San Mateo County. For more details and links to current conditions, go to ksqd.org and click on the storm information page. Thank you, Eliza, for that update. And back to our bold guest, Dr. Aviva Romani. And Dr. Romani, my next question or, or uh, topic is follows exactly what we're dealing with in California. You wrote that in our age of climate change, unless we intervene in the fragmentation, nothing will be left to, I guess, mediate the disaster of maximum warming. Can you expand more on that? Yes. One of the most devastating things we've done to the planet is fragment its habitat systems. So when a new development goes in, when a new road goes in, it will break up the local habitat. And the Gaia theory was the idea that was proposed in the 80s that the whole, or earlier, that the whole Earth is one living system that's interdependent. So it's not just that you have a river here and a forest there. It's all the constituent elements between the river and the forest, which are called ecotones. So uh, as you go further out from the water and closer to the forest, you have a set of systems that allow the water to be taken up without the kinds of flooding you're talking about right now in California. Uh, What happens is that people have created these developments in the midst of this habitat, for example, along a river or along a coast that completely ignores that need for contiguity. Now, to some extent, that can be mitigated by individual landowners. When you plant indigenous species, for example, and ideally, if you take a good look at the relationship between habitat zones to understand what should be planted closer to the river and what should be planted closer to the forest, you begin to help that system repair itself. But when we encroach on new relatively virgin land, we destroy the possibility of keeping the whole system together. Well, and uh, before we get into our Keep, Stop, Starts, you wrote at the end of the book Uh, You write that you saw a different kind of violence to resist from 2020 than you saw in the 1960s. But the lessons from power are the same. Succumb to despair. Resistance is futile. Power confers impunity. How do you see all of that playing out today? Well, we're definitely seeing the rise of totalitarian authorities and in our political system and even in our local systems. And what's most troubling about that is the alliance between these totalitarian systems and fossil fuel hegemonies that protect the corporations that are committing the ecocide and the extent to which people in power are tapping into the the legitimate grievances that some people have and the extent to which those grievances are being fanned into actual violence makes it really difficult to address the kinds of things we've been talking about today. How can you talk to people about 
thinking through how an ecological system works, which is fairly complicated, if all they can think of is how angry they are at their neighbor. The divisiveness that we're experiencing in politics today and the legitimate fears that people have, for example, nobody knows how to deal with immigration because Congress won't do anything about it. That's realistic except to say no, which doesn't really solve anything. Um, As long as people are engaged in those kinds of battles, they can't really pay attention to the much larger battle of how are we going to survive. And survival is not going to be solved with a gun. And many people have been given this idea if they just have um, AK, whatever it is, 47, um, that they can exterminate whatever it is that they fear. But actually what they should be fearing is the system that is rendering people helpless. We have a serious problem. There are serious solutions. As long as you distract people by uh, banning books and libraries or banning abortion, for that matter, nobody's going to deal with the real critical issues. And some of the critical issues are what is the relationship between the population explosion that we've seen across the nation, and I don't mean in third world countries. Every child who's born in this country consumes an enormous amount of energy, and these are privileged people who are creating a population problem that feeds into, directly feeds into not only the energy problem, but the capacity of our resources to find solutions and actually implement solutions. When you have too much of any species in any contained system, and the earth is a contained system, there will be conflict, no matter what species it is. They will start eating each other. They'll jump off cliffs. They'll act insanely. And I think that's a lot of what we're seeing right now. People are so busy being stoked into behaving in insane manners that nobody or very few people are able to do anything about the real problems that threaten the human species and, as many people are beginning to fear, civilization itself. Right. And paralysis, feeling paralyzed and not having the ability to, as they say, what can I do, or can, what, how I can make a change. And that's one reason why I like to close this program with Keep, Stop, Start. So what can we keep doing, stop doing, and start doing, as we, what we've discussed today, Dr. Romani? There's a lot we can do. I have a much longer list than I think you have time for. In our two, um, in our two minutes, we've got a couple minutes. <laughs> <laughs> so the first thing you can do is support real news media that can give people actual information, not just opinions. Uh, you can consider becoming more vegetarian in your diet, Uh, You can consider stopping eating beef, for example. You can reduce the use of flying and uh, cars for transportation. Um, You can contact your representatives and say that you really want them to address the environmental issues. Yes, we're taught that we are helpless. We are not helpless. 
yes, we are in a situation that is desperately urgent. That doesn't mean that we can't do things. You can be involved in restoration, in conservation of environment. You can stop using plastics. And most important, reduce your use of anything that creates methane. And there are a number of websites that you can go to and just uh, type in how to mitigate or how to stop climate change, and you'll find an infinity of resources. And be kind. Be kind. And be kind, yes. And empathy. You know, it's interesting... um, you know, our program's name is Be Bold America, and you talk about empathy. And many people say empathy is a weakness. But to me, I think empathy requires boldness. I mean, empathy requires a willingness to be vulnerable to someone else's feelings. It seems a little strange to say to be vulnerable requires boldness, but I think it does. And I think that's where kindness comes from, too, is when you have empathy, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. It takes courage to be transparent and honest. It takes courage to be kind. It takes courage to feel for somebody else who is in pain. That's hard, and it's absolutely necessary. Well, Dr. Romani, it has been lovely to spend some time with you today on air. And also, I'm so grateful we didn't lose our electricity in any of our three locations. <laughs> yes. yes. We've got a couple yes. minutes to Aren't keep we our lucky? fingers crossed. But we are lucky, but we have a couple more minutes here, and I want to thank you so much for being our bold and impressive guest today. Remember to pick up Dr. Romani's brilliant book, Divining Chaos, the Autobiography of an Idea, and also learn more about her at avivaromani.com. That's A-V-I-V-A-R-A-H-M-A-N-I.com. And to remind you of her film, we're hoping there's a link on trigger points and tipping points on her website. Thank you so much, Dr. Romani. Thank you so much, Jill. It's been a great pleasure and an honor to be here with you. Our pleasure, too. What's next on Be Bold America? Well, join us on Sunday, January 29th when we will be talking about how inequality kills us all. Dr. Berserka is a physician and public health expert. He argues that economic inequality has made Americans some of the unhealthiest people in the industrialized world. We are awash in health advice and even own high-tech gadgets that allow us to manage our well-being more than ever. Yet Americans still rank among the lowest on virtually all health measures when compared with other rich countries, and quite a few poorer ones, too. Worse on average, we die sooner than our global counterparts, and while we're alive, enjoying fewer years of good health. Why? Find out by listening to Be Bold America on Sunday, January 29th at 5 p.m. to hear Inequality Kills Us All. Remember, Be Bold America is available as a podcast. Now you may listen to the show anytime for free by subscribing through your favorite podcast platform, such as Apple, Google, and Spotify. I want to give a special thank you to Be Bold America's program engineer, Eliza James, and our station's program director, Howard Feldstein. You're listening to KSQD Santa Cruz, Many Voices, One Station. Listen worldwide online at ksqd.org. Stay tuned for Reflections on Buddhism. My name is Jill Cody, and thank you for listening 
to Be Bold America. Until next time, keep stop starts.